Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, Executive Editor of Recode. Thanks for listening to Recode Replay. Here's one of the interviews from the stage of Code Commerce 2017 in New York City. If you like it, please leave us a review at iTunes.com slash Recode Replay. Matt's wife is expecting their second child uh, any day, any minute. So if he runs off stage, it may be because of one of my questions, but probably not. Um, but we're going to try to get through this. I think we'll make it. I think we'll make okay. it. Okay. Okay, cool. So, um, so on a certain Friday in June, a big announcement gets dropped on the press, on everyone. I believe it was a Friday morning because I was off in a car when I see... Amazon to buy Whole Foods. Um, I believe you were in the middle of your, you were in the run-up to your IPO at that part? Yeah, we hadn't yet launched our roadshow yet, but we were getting ready to do that. Okay, so you see that. I want to know, where are you and what do you think? Yeah, look, I got, you know, I got a call a little bit before everyone else heard about it, and uh, you know, I think um, it was an interesting deal. You know, I think um, the implications of the deal are still you know, out there and remain to be fully seen in terms of what Amazon's going to do. Um, you know, in some ways it's applicable to our space, and in some ways, obviously, what they're doing is much different than what we're doing. Um, and so, you know, it was it was interesting timing as it related to our IPO for sure, um, but um, you know, didn't change obviously our business strategy and in terms of what we focus on as a company, which is building incredible meal experiences over a long-term time horizon and building a purpose-built infrastructure to do that. Um, and so, obviously, didn't change the way we think about our company and our business and our strategy. So, that's all great. And then you have investors who, um, in the midst of this, uh, start thinking that this will, in some way, have an effect on your business. So, I want to know, what were you hearing from investors during that time? Because that narrative was out there, that this combination is going to have a big effect on you guys. Yeah, you know, we didn't, investors don't tell us everything that they think, obviously. I think... Um, tell me. Yeah, well, look, yeah. people are thinking broadly about what is going to happen in the world for online groceries. And I think um, what's interesting about the Amazon deal, and my interpretation of it, and I think people are still trying to interpret what Amazon's intentions are and what they want to do, but to me what it signifies is, boy, is there a big opportunity out there to tackle online groceries. Boy, do brands matter. Um, you know, Amazon obviously saw value in the Whole Foods brand. And with something like food, where trust and quality and experience really, and curation really matter, um, you know, brands matter. And um, the other thing it emphasizes is that there's not just one way to tackle a market as big as the food business and the grocery business, right? I mean, it's a gigantic industry. It's crazy to think that people are all going to get their food in exactly the same way or just consume one brand of food for everything they eat all day long. Uh, it's such a big market. And so it's not a winner-takes-all market. And I think that's also one of the things that people are interpreting out of that deal, um, which is there are now multiple ways that um, people like us and people like Amazon and other companies believe um, consumers are going to buy food in the future. And um, companies need to be thoughtful about approaching consumers in the way they want to be approached and uh, accommodating those different use cases and needs. So let's talk a little bit about um, what your product looks like today, who you're serving today, yep. and what it needs to look like a couple of years from now or next quarter to get people to stick around and also to attract 
people that you know have different needs in terms of me how many meals what yeah. the meals like how big their family is can you talk a little bit about yeah, uh, sure. how how you how you look at the need to diversify and what that looks like well look, the the history of our company is that we are a 5 year old business we actually just hit our 5 year anniversary last month and it's been incredible what we've been able to accomplish in just 5 years we went from being three guys packing boxes ourselves and begging our friends to try our product to being a nationwide brand that stands for a love of home cooking and that meal experiences and working with farmers. And um, during that five-year period, our strategy has really been to get scale. And in pursuit of scale, which was the or right thing for land us to do. It seemed like land grab mode. Well, look, you know, we created an industry that grew really fast and an opportunity that we are the leader in and we are proud to be the leader in and want to continue to be the leader in. And um, given that um, situation we were in, we saw a big opportunity to get scale quickly. And um, in pursuit of scale, we deliberately were very focused in our product offerings. We have uh, millions of customers uh, today, and we are increasingly trying to design new products and think about new ways to engage our customers in more personalized and targeted ways that accommodate them. You know, obviously getting scale over five years was really important for us to be able to attract capital, to attract talent, to build the supply chain infrastructure and the brand that is continuing to differentiate us from um, other folks out there and other people in the food world and in the grocery world. Um, but now that we've reached a pretty good size scale, and obviously we still think we can continue to get bigger um, from a scale perspective, but um, you know, thinking about our customers and recognizing that not every person is the same, obviously, um, now that we have more time and more resources to build out that infrastructure, we've been investing a lot in that. So, so things let's, like, talk, let's talk about some yeah. of those differences from what the product looked like today or last year yeah. and what, what you're moving toward to, to get a more, even a bigger well, mainstream. The audience. most extreme example, in the very earliest days of the business, we had a menu that was three recipes every week and every single customer got the exact same three recipes. Today, we have 12 recipes that we offer every single week. Our recipes change every week and we have a very thoughtful composition of what those 12 recipes are designed for segments. So things like we have a, a plan designed for two-person households. We have a plan designed for family families. We have a plan uh, where it's more experiential, where our recipes are more discovery-oriented, experience-oriented. We also have faster recipes, 30-minute meals or less on our recipe, do on our menu And do week. 30 minutes mean, does that mean 30 minutes? It does, yeah, they're really fast. Um, you know, in some cases, we'll do things like pre-chopped chicken for you, or produce a, a pesto sauce for you, or um, pre-grate your cheese for you. And um, we design those recipes so that they're more for people who want still something really exceptional, like a chef-quality meal, um, and they're with interesting ingredients they might not know how to work with on their own, but they're meant for a regular weeknight meal if you want something really fast. And so um, we're thoughtful for, about that. Obviously, when it comes to cooking, there's an element of individual performance yeah. in how fast you cook something. So um, it does vary a little bit person to person, but we make our 30-minute meals, the ones labeled 30-minute meals specifically, so that it'll be much faster than that um, in all likelihood. And do you want to get to a point where a really busy family that may only have time for one Blue Apron meal a week has that option? I mean, is that, a viable, is that viable economically yeah. for you guys? Look, Everything is viable economically depending on the economic model you create for a given product. And so um, there are a lot of levers in our business that we are experimenting with. 
things like obviously the supply chain and the product design, um, but also pricing and um, you know uh, pricing models that are interesting for us. And we view our business over time becoming a much more generalized um, offering to customers where we have different things that people want based on their needs. Might be more or less recipes in a given week. We actually just um, rolled out a, a significant expansion to our offerings where we allow people to order less or more recipes in a given week um, and also have much more flexibility in getting any recipes they want. Um, Does that mean a la carte grocery is an option? So um, a la carte grocery is not something that we offer today, though we do have many a la carte products today on top of our core, quote, subscription, which quite frankly isn't even really a subscription because when you sign up for our product, you can easily choose what day you get your product on, to not get it in a given week, to get in a given week, to get more or less recipes in a given week. So we have upsell, we have um, different personalization opportunities, and then we have um, a marketplace business where we sell cooking supplies, a couple pantry items, um, and a very curated selection of other a la carte items also. We do think that um, a la carte is something that we will be doing more of um, over time as we think about how to solve different customer segment needs and design products for those segments as well. And as you get more a la carte, maybe the Amazon Whole Foods combination has more of an impact? Well, look, I'm not, um, we're not gonna go and be a head-to-head -head, uh, mass market grocer like you know Amazon uh, and Whole Foods are trying to be. And we don't wanna be everything to everybody. You know, We are a curated brand with a point of view on home cooking. And we want to be a brand that stands for a love of home cooking and that lifestyle that surrounds that. And because of that, we're building something that's emotional and engaging to our customers in a way that if you're just a transactional grocery store, you can never really be. And so I think we um, feel like we play in a curated lens. We think about our business as a products business, not as a retailer and not as an e-commerce business. We are a brand that produces original and proprietary products every week, and we see I that like, I feel like that's new messaging, like public, public market messaging. No, you know, we had um, been saying that for some time, and um, you know, I think that we have been emphasizing those messages to people more um, now that we're a public company, because I think it's one of the things people don't fully understand about us, quite frankly. And it's that we have an opportunity through building this brand and through having an um, engaged customer base around our brand to expand in a variety of ways. And we are building a platform from a brand perspective and from a supply chain perspective that allows us to exist in multiple formats in the future and in multiple ways in the future, depending on how customers want to interact with us. So um, you know, that has always been part of how we think about our business. But um, it's been more important, I think, recently to explain that to folks. Got it. So let's, let's uh, dive in a bit into supply chain. So you have your first earnings announcement recently. You talk about um, <clears throat> some issues that you've encountered. I, I think I forget what the word was, but essentially surprise issues, um, bringing one, a new f uh, warehousing facility up to speed yep. and getting some volume through that facility. Is that something you foresaw uh, before you went public? And if not, what, how did those problems arise? Yeah, so um, you know, the story, uh, you're talking about our Linden Fulfillment Center. We built and are in the process of launching a new fulfillment center in Linden, New Jersey, which is our, most, uh, our largest and most ambitious 
fulfillment center that we built today. It has more um, automated equipment in it. It has more potential for low cost, um, and it has more capacity and capability for us. And this is a complicated, I mean, you're putting uh, exact measurements of ingredients, so this is not What we do is very up. difficult. Yeah. Um, I think that's the other thing people don't fully understand and appreciate about our business. You think about how difficult the perishable, the grocery business is. There's perishable food. A tomato isn't just a widget. You know, different tomatoes have different shapes and sizes, and especially when you're working with um, sustainable farmers directly all over the country like we do, there's a huge amount of quality that goes into taking um, high-end goods like that and turning them into something that is um, scalable in a national way, and then every week doing that in a high-quality way and changing our SKU lineup every single week because we launch 12 new original recipe experiences every week, and the ch items we work with change because of that. And so we built a lot of systems that allow us to manage that in a flexible way. One of the reasons we do that is because that new content is one of the things that keeps bringing our customers back to us and keeps them excited with and engaged by our brand on an emotional level. That's what I said. At the essence of what we do is we create products. So getting so back new, to the question, yep. which is um, what's going on with our Linden Fulfillment Center, basically the history there is we spent much of a year constructing that center, getting it ready, and just as we were um, you know, in Q2, it was a very tiny percentage of our volume. We did our very first deliveries on May 15th there. Um, in Q2, it was like 3% of our system's volume. The potential for that center is for it to be something like 50% of our system's volume. And it was the first time we launched something that ambitious. So I think we were a little overly optimistic with um, how quickly we can get that from zero to 50% of our volume. And what's the in. challenge? Is it the hiring? Is it the well, it's, it's is a it new things. processes? Look, anyone who's ever launched a new fulfillment center or a new manufacturing plant knows that these things take time and um, there's always some unexpected complexity to it and that's what we encountered. I think some of that is related to the hundreds of new employees we have there who we're training and introducing new processes to, to new systems we have there, um, new sort systems and new food manufacturing equipment that just take a little bit of time to get up and running, um, you know, all the way through just some process tweaks and optimizations that um, will allow the center to, you know, continue to scale. And in the meantime, you know, we have two centers um, on the East Coast, one in Jersey City and one in Linden, and there's obviously some um, incremental cost that we're incurring by having two centers up and running, and our plan is to hopefully complete that transition, um, you know, as quickly as we can, and. Um, continue to scale up Linden and, and um, you know, ultimately make that our lowest cost um, operating center. And the other question on this thread is, is, relates back to the timing of the IPO. So you have these issues pop up, you have the Amazon Whole Foods thing, which you didn't foresee. Um, the, why, did you go, why did you go public when, when you did? Was it mainly a, a need for capital? No, you know, I think the reason that we went public is because we believe that um, being public makes our business stronger. And um, you know, I think we have a very long-term oriented view to what we're trying to accomplish with our brand and our platform. And I talked about some of the expansive opportunities that we do see for our brand and company to play in the lives of every American who wants to cook in some way. Um, and we're in it for the long run. You know, we have a decades-long vision for what we're trying to do. And so when we go public, 
It's just a matter of when we had the opportunity to go public. You know, we had been working on going public, and we're ready to go public. And so, um, you know, if we had gone public a couple months earlier, a couple months later, um, quite frankly, that was not the you know that was not the most important thing to us. We wanted to go public so we can raise capital. We wanted to go public so we can have a, a stock price that we can use um, to attract talent, you know, people um, and the like, um, and grow the profile of our company to set it up for long-term success, access to capital markets, et cetera. So, um, you know, I'm happy that we did go public. I think one of the things people don't talk enough about is the accomplishment that I feel in the sense of pride that I feel in having built a business I'm, over I'm the five wrong years. I'm the wrong person for that. Um, no problem. Over yeah. five years yeah. to um, have built the business into a public company like we did. And look, you know, people still haven't seen um, all of the things that we hope to do over time, and, and we have a long-term orientation to it. When, when you go from, you know, so a couple years ago, you know, raise money at a private market, $2 billion valuation, look today, market cap around maybe a billion or so. What do you, do you have to spend extra time internally explaining either why this does matter, why this doesn't matter? Like, what, what yeah. is that like? Look, communication is probably the number one job of a CEO in a lot of ways. And, um, and even more now than before? Look, we, we have um, a company that is going through a period of change, right? Going from a private company to a public company is different, and there's a lot of change management associated with that. Um, you know, certainly, we're not the first company to ever have a stock price go up and down or be volatile, and I think um, many great companies um, have gone through that. So I think in terms of internally, it's about putting into context what we're trying to do. We have a really passionate group of employees who are focused on Blue Apron's mission and vision and are proud and inspired by the impact that we are having in home chefs all over the country. We get emails every week from our customers telling us things like, you've changed my life, you've saved my marriage, you're helping me bond with my kids. We have people who have us be part of wedding proposals with um, people that they're looking to marry. These are incredibly powerful human moments that are um, you know, dependent on food and home cooking. And that is what our employees get really excited about. And so um, being clear with people about this is our vision, this is what we're trying to accomplish, is what we need to be doing internally. And people get that and are um, ready to execute and ready to work hard. I think certainly um, you know, making sure that people are focused on our top priorities is another big part of that. And we've been doing a lot of um, you know, discussion and and communication internally to make sure that people are prioritizing our, our number one things and, and um, you know, staying focused on execution. So this space right now, you know, Amazon, we have Amazon Whole Foods over here. We have a lot of traditional grocers trying to figure out, you know, how to get more digital in a lot of ways. And we have reports of grocery companies sniffing around some of your competitors. Um, have you guys been approached at all during this process? I'm assuming as the stock price goes down, you get inbound. Look, we talk routinely with companies about partnerships and opportunities. And I, you know, I mentioned to you um, that we don't see Blue Apron as just a e-commerce only brand. You know, we are a brand that can exist in multiple formats and multiple ways over time. And um, we're Which always interested what? in store storefronts. That's one example. You know, another example is we have a cookbook coming out, and our cookbook is going to be on Amazon and on um, in retailers. You know, we um, you know have a um, a variety of products 
that could exist in different in-store formats. We have a, a, a partnership that we work with Costco on, and you can um, buy uh, Blue Apron gift cards in Costco. You can get Blue Apron on different people's registries. There's a whole variety of ways that um, we see opportunity to work collaboratively with other brands, especially retailers and um, other e-commerce businesses, because that's a channel, and we're a brand and a product creator. And so I think um, we're, we're always open to exploring opportunities like that. What's the case to remain independent? Well, look, I mean, we're uh, going after a gigantic, gigantic market opportunity. And we think we are in the very earliest innings of a gigantic transformation of the offline food industry, which is where most of food is bought and sold today, to increasingly being digital. And um, new brands that are interacting with consumers in ways where they're shifting their preferences from some of the old brands of last generation to new, more modern brands that are more emotional, more interactive, more um, you know, health-oriented, more um, sustainability-oriented, more impact-oriented in what those brands are trying to accomplish. And that's not a short-term opportunity. That is a gigantic, decades-long opportunity as more and more dollars move online, as new brands capture share from old brands by addressing changing consumer demand. Um, and the market that we're going to have there is so big that we believe we can successfully build a business over many, many decades that will be a substantial company. And so um, that's, that's what we're trying to do. I have a bunch more questions, but we, um, I want to get the audience involved. If we have some questions right now, uh, you can make your way up to one of the mics. Otherwise, I will keep going. Um, so on the, I wonder about, you know, just back to the, the logistics of making this business work. Um, and again, you know, not to harp too much on, on acquisition talk, but it seems like you have a lot of, you know, there are a lot of unique skill sets in your facilities that, and processes that could be valuable to bigger companies. And then on the other hand, you know, at a very high level, you have bigger companies with, you know, physical reach and, you know, mainstream customer bases. Um, are, there, are there downsides to, would there be downsides to a combination? It it's really hard to speculate wildly, I think. Like I said, there are certain partnerships, combination or not a combination, um, there are certain partnerships that can be valuable. And um, we've done some of those. And um, you know, we're always looking for opportunities to do things. Certainly distribution, um, especially in other channels where we're a dominantly e-commerce-based business today. That's one of the things that we're really good at today. We're great at creating products. We're great at branding. We're great at these experiences. But we're also really good at merchandising groceries online, yep. and that's kind of what recipes are for us. They're ingredient merchandising, and our ability to generate demand and engage customers in an online format is something we're really good at. What we don't do a lot today of is sell in other channels, so certainly there's opportunities for us um, to think about how our brand might exist there in the future, and um, other people have a lot of experience in that. What's the biggest challenge to getting people to, to once they try the service, to stick with it? Well, what we hear from, so we have a dynamic in our business, especially in our um, core product and our meal experiences, where people try us out, and then um, some people obviously stick with Blue Apron and make it their lifestyle. They cook with us incredibly frequently, and we generate um, very large amounts of revenue per customer 
especially when you benchmark us versus other kinds of e-commerce businesses, um, other retail businesses, and the like. And then there are some folks who try us out, and they either cease ordering or order less frequently on an ongoing basis. It's really interesting, because when you speak with those folks, what you hear is, I love Blue Apron. You have an amazing brand, you have an amazing product, but I needed this, that, or this other feature to make it work for me. Something like a specific dietary preference or something like a different cadence or a different speed or a different serving size. And um, that is the direct result of how focused we've been over the last five years in pursuit of scale. And one of the big opportunities for us as we roll out more options on our menu and um, increasingly use all the data that we're collecting on our customers to know them better and recommend recipes better to them is to address people in that earliest part of the funnel where they've tried Blue Apron, they like Blue Apron, they like what we do, but they needed this or that. And actually that's the thing that if we address really well, will give us the biggest leverage on average across all of our customers on a unit economic perspective. So it's a really interesting opportunity for us. Got it. Um, I'll keep going for a couple more. So we have, uh, when it, you know, part of your earnings announcement that people will look at closely in your S1 was marketing spend. And then I believe you're, you're going to ramp down marketing spend a bit in the second half of this year. Can you talk about sort of how dependent you feel the company is now versus it should be on marketing long term as both a new customer acquisition tool and, and bringing people back? Yeah, well, um, marketing is not that complicated uh, at the end of the day in terms of how we think about it. You know, we are very focused on attractive, generating attractive returns on our marketing, and we are highly analytical about how we do that. So we spend on an acquisition basis, um, we try to target marketing to get certain payback targets that we'd like. And payback targets are dependent upon a number of factors for us, like revenue per customer, um, margin per customer, and the like. And so when we're doing something like, for instance, scaling up a um, very substantial fulfillment center, which um, you know, incurs additional costs for us on the margin side in the meantime. Unex about, unexpected costs in some Well, case. unexpected certainly um, relative to the timing of the IPO and the, Q the Q2 earnings release. Um, you know, um, but we had expected some additional costs associated with that, and then we um, uncovered some additional costs. That is one of the reasons why we were rethinking and have rethought some of the way we're spending our marketing um, in the going forward uh, you know, quarters. So um, you know, that's what we said on the earnings call. And um, that's because we are very thoughtful about how we spend our marketing. Now there's other kinds of marketing. There's acquisition marketing, and there's also sort of- You're propping up the whole podcast industry, so you We love podcasts, we love podcasts. Um, one of the cool things about podcasts for us, actually, is that because our business is experiential, having someone talk about you know, Blue Apron and explain Blue Apron and give their personal stories and experiences around Blue Apron has been a great uh, marketing vehicle for us. It's also why our referral program has been a major driver of our business historically. And the referral program you know, doesn't cost any marketing dollars. Obviously, it costs um, you know, product and trial boxes. And we can activate our own customers. That's a great channel for us. Um, but um, you know, there's other kinds of marketing as well, and we're getting a lot more sophisticated internally and are trying to invest more internally on what we call product marketing, 
which is um, segmenting our um, large base of existing customers who have credit cards down with us, who have relationships with us, who have, um, we understand their preferences, and segmenting them and working with them to generate incremental ongoing revenue um, and monetizing them on a revenue per customer basis better through more thoughtful um, non-paid marketing campaigns. Okay. And so there's a whole ver um, work stream on that as well, which is really important to us and um, you know, that we're also focused on. But you're staying in podcasts. We r routinely re-optimize. We love podcasts, yep. as I said, but if our marketing team is doing their job, they're always looking at how do we get the best returns. And as I mentioned, we care a lot about marketing returns. So um, they're always looking at where those marginal returns are. And when we scale up or scale down our budgets, that's how we evaluate it. And um, podcasts have historically done pretty well for us. Um, and we're continuously um, being optimal there. All right. Well, we'll have to do this again in about another year, and uh, we'll have a lot more to talk about. That would be great. All right. Thanks, Matt. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for listening to Recode Replay. Remember to leave us a review at iTunes.com slash Recode Replay, and be sure to check out our other podcasts. Every Monday, I host Recode Decode, a podcast about tech and media's key players, big ideas, and how they're changing the world we live in. On Thursdays, you can hear Recode Media, in which Peter Kafka interviews the smartest and most interesting people in the media world. And on Fridays, I host Too Embarrassed to Ask, along with Lauren Good of The Verge, where we answer all of your questions about consumer tech. You can find all these shows and more at recode.net or wherever you listen to your podcasts. <laughs>